What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Chapter 4 of Maisley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Maisley by Johanna Spirey. Chapter 4. An Unexpected Apparition. Kurt had so many plans the next day that he already rushed to school as if he had not a minute to lose. Mia and Lipo, who started with him, looked full of astonishment at his unusual speed. Arriving at the school, he saw Lonnelly coming along with a drooping head and not, as usual, with a happy stride. "'What is it, Lonnelly?' asked Kurt, coming nearer. "'Why are your eyes swollen already before it is even eight o'clock? Just be happy. I'll help you.' Did anybody hurt you? No, Kurt, no one. But I can't be happy any more. And with these words, Lonnelly's eyes filled again with tears. I wish you could see, Grandmother, since I've been on the shame bench. I would not mind if she were angry, for she generally forgives me again after a while. But she is sad all the time. It is worst when I go to school in the morning, because she says that I brought down shame on us both, and that I have given her gray hairs. She said to me that after having lived an honorable life and spent most of it with the most noble family, this was very hard for her. She felt as if she had raised me only to bring down shame on both for the rest of our lives. Lonnelly broke out anew into tears. This never-ending disgrace, together with the constant reproaches she had had to bear, seemed to choke her. No, no, Lonnelly, you don't need to cry any more. It is not at all the way your grandmother is taking it. Kurt said consolingly. I'll go to her, ever so soon, to explain what happened. Please be happy, and everything will come out all right. Do you think so? Lonnelly asked, pleasantly surprised. Her eyes were clear again, for she always believed whatever Kurt said to her. Now he rushed over to the noisy crowd of children, who seemed to have been waiting for him. Kurt was always glad to have such numerous friends, for he usually needed a large following for the execution of his schemes. Today he had two large undertakings in his head, and he needed to persuade his comrades to join him. He was explaining with such violent gestures and eager words that they entirely neglected the first strokes of the tower bell. At the last and eighth stroke, the little crowd dispersed as suddenly as a flock of frightened birds. Then they rushed into the schoolhouse. Kurt was home today, ahead of everybody, too. He approached his mother with a large sheet of paper. Look, mother, Mr. Tree has got a song. Yesterday evening he threatened two more of my friends with the stick, but they were luckily able to save themselves. It seems as if he had at least four eyes and ears which can see and hear whatever is going on. I finished the song. Can I read it to you? I wish you had no friends that Mr. Tree has had occasion to frighten with a stick, said the mother. I hope that it won't ever happen to you. Oh, he often threatens innocent people, Kurt replied. Listen to a true description of him. A song about Mr. Trius, the boy beater. Old Trius lives in our town. A haughty man is he, and every one that he can catch he beats right heartily. Old Trius wears a yellow coat. It's very long and thick, but all the children run away at sight of his big stick. Old Trius of the pointed hat. He wanders all around, and if he beats nobody, why, there's no one to be found. Old Trius thinks to spank a boy is really very kind. 
and all he cannot hit in front, at least he hits behind. Old Atreus makes a pretty face with every blow he gives. He'll beat us all for many years, I'm thinking, if he lives. The mother could not help smiling a little bit during the perusal, but now she said seriously, This song must under no condition fall into Mr. Treus's hands. He might not look at it as a joke, and you must not offend him. I advise you, Kurt, not to challenge Mr. Treus in any way, for he might reply to you in some unexpected fashion. He has his own ways and means of getting rid of people. Kurt was very anxious to get his mother's permission to run about that same evening by moonlight with his friends, and his mother granted it willingly. I hope you are not going on one of the unfortunate apple expeditions I hear so much about, she added. Kurt quite indignantly assured her that he would never do such a thing. Lipo was pushing him to one side now. The little boy had made attempts to reach his mother for several minutes, and he was delighted at his brother's quick departure. Mr. Rector sends you his regards, and he wants to know if you wanted to give him an answer. Here is a letter, said Lipo. Where did you bring the letter from? asked the mother. I didn't bring the letter. Lise from the rectory brought it, was Lipo's information. But Lise saw me in front of the door and said, I should take the letter up with me and give it to you, and tell her whether you wanted to give the rector an answer or not. Oh, that is just the way a message ought to be given, the mother said with a smile. Did you hear it, Maisley? I wish you could learn from Lipo how to do it. Whenever you have one to give, I have such trouble to find out what really happened and what you have only imagined. Maisley, whose knitting ball was at the moment in the most hopelessly knotted condition, was ever so glad when her mother suggested a new activity. Quickly flinging her knitting away, she jumped up from her stool. Then she began to repeat Lipo's speech, word for word. I did not bring the letter. Lease from the rectory. No, no, Maisley, I do not mean it that way, the mother interrupted her. I mean that the reports you bring me so often sound quite impossible. I want you to be as careful and exact in them as Lipo. In the meantime, the mother had opened the letter and looked suddenly quite frightened. Tell the girl that I shall go to Mr. Rector myself and that she need not wait for an answer, was her message entrusted to Lipo. The thing she had dreaded so much was settled now. The rector let her know in his letter that he had realized the time had come for his pupils to be put into different hands. He wrote that he had decided to discontinue the studies with them next fall, but that he would be only too glad to be of assistance to Mrs. Maxa in consulting about Bruno's further education. He closed with an assurance that he would be the happier to do so because Bruno had always been very dear to him. Mrs. Maxa, sitting silently with folded hands, was lost in thought. This was something that happened very seldom. But Mia stood before her and trying to get her sympathy with passionate gestures. Just think, mother, she cried out, Elvira is so angry now that she will never have anything more to do with me. No, never. But she was most offended because I told her that it was wrong of her not to admit that she had chattered in school. She said, quite sarcastically, that if I chose to correct her on account of that raggedy Lonnelly, I should keep Lonnelly for a friend and not her. Let her be for once, said the mother. Till now you have always gone after her, so do what she wishes this time. It is wrong to call Lonnelly raggedy. Few people are as honest and agreeable as Apollonie and her grandchild. Mia was ready with many more complaints, for whenever anything bothered her, she felt the need to tell her mother. She realized, though, that she had to put off further communications for a quiet evening hour. Bruno had approached, and turning to his mother, 
asked in great suspense. "'Mother, what did Mr. Rector write to you? Have the plum thieves been discovered?' "'I do not think that they have brought his decision about, but I am sure they hastened it. Read the letter,' said his mother, handing it to him. "'That is not so bad,' Bruno said after reading it. "'As soon as you send me to town I shall be rid of them at last, and I won't have to bother about them any more. You know, mother, that all they care about is to do mean and nasty things.' "'But they will go to town, too, and then you will be thrown together. "'There won't be anybody then who cares for you and will listen to you,' the mother lamented. "'Do not worry, mother. The town is big and we won't be so close together. "'I'll keep far enough away from them, you may be sure. "'Don't let it trouble you,' Bruno reassured her. "'Kurt was so much occupied at lunch with his own plans and ideas "'that he never even noticed when his favorite dessert appeared on the table. "'Lipo, seriously looking at him, said quite reproachfully, "'Now you don't even see that we have apple dumpling.' Such an indifference seemed wrong to the little boy. But Kurt even swallowed the apple dumpling absent-mindedly. After lunch he begged his mother's permission to be allowed to leave immediately, because he still had so much to talk over with his friends. "'I'll tell you all about it afterwards, mother. Be sure that I am doing something right that ought to be done,' he reassured her. "'If only I can go now.' Having obtained permission, he shot away, and arriving at the schoolhouse, flew into the midst of a crowd of boys. But before their plan could be carried out, the children were obliged to sit two whole hours on the school benches. It truly seemed today as if they would never end. Lux, the sexton's boy, who preferred pulling the bell-rope and being violently drawn up by it to sitting in school, tapped his neighbor's sleeve. "'How late is Max?' he asked. "'I don't know.' "'Max!' Lux whispered again. The second expedition will be more fun than the first. I look forward to it more, don't you? You can look forward to the shame bench if you don't keep quiet, Max retorted, squinting with his eyes in the direction of the teacher. The latter had actually directed his eyes to the side where the whisperers sat. Lux, bending over his book, kept quiet at last. Finally the longed-for hour came, and in a few minutes the whole swarm was outside. With a great deal of noise, but in a quick and pretty orderly fashion, they now formed a procession, which began to move in the direction of Apollonie's little house. Here a halt was made. Kurt, climbing to the top of a heap of logs, which lay in the pathway, stood upright while the others grouped themselves about him. Apollonie opened the window a little, but hid behind it, for she was wondering what was going on. Lonely stood close behind her. She had just come back breathlessly for she had heard that a procession was coming towards her grandmother's house. "'Mrs. Apollonie!' Kurt cried out with loud voice. Two whole classes from school have come to tell you that it was not Lonely's fault when she had to sit on the shame bench. It only happened because her character is so good. Out of pure politeness she answered a question somebody asked her. When the teacher wanted to know who was chattering, she honestly accused herself. She did not tell him that she answered a question in fear of accusing somebody else.' We wanted to tell you all about it, so that you won't think you have to be ashamed of Lonely. We think and know that she is the friendliest and most obliging child in school. Long live Lonely! Lux suddenly cheered, so that the whole band involuntarily joined him. Long live Lonely! It sounded again, and the echo from the castle mountain repeated Lonely. Apollonie opened the window completely, and putting her head cried, it is lovely of you, children, that you don't want Lonely disgraced. I thank you for justifying her. 
wait a minute i should like to do you a favor too with that apollonie disappeared from the window soon after she came out by the door with a large basket of fragrant apples on her arm putting it in front of the children she said encouragingly help yourselves good gracious cried out lux with one of the juicy apples between his teeth i know these they only grow in the castle garden on the two trees on the right in the corner by the fence do you know that kurt he said confidently i only wonder how she could get hold of such a basketful you know without being you know with this he made the unmistakable motion of mr trius with his tool of correction what on earth do you mean kurt cried out full of indignation mrs apollonie did not need to steal them mr trius certainly could give her a few basket of apples for all the shirts she sews and mends for him oh i see that is different said lux now properly informed in the shortest time the huge basket was emptied of its delicious apples and the whole band had dispersed after many exclamations of thanks they all ran home and kurt outran them all it was important now to do his homework as speedily as possible as the second expedition was to take place a little later when he reached the door he noticed that mrs kinnipel was coming up behind him running ahead quickly he flung open the living-room door and called in take Maisley out of the way or else something horrible will happen again after saying this he ran away bruno and mia who were busy in the room with their work did not find it necessary to follow kurt's command if he found it so necessary why didn't he do it himself they thought remaining seated Maisley had risen rapidly and looked towards the door with large expectant eyes wondering what was going to happen mrs kinnipel now entered why does something horrible always happen when mrs kinnipel comes Maisley asked in a loud voice mia quickly getting up went out of the door pulling Maisley after her to explain her hasty retreat she said that she wanted to fetch her mother she simply had to take that horrible little Maisley out of the way who could know what she might say next she always brought forward her most awful ideas when it was least suitable the mother who was on the way already entered just when mia was running out with Maisley. bruno also slipped quickly after them he had only waited for his mother's appearance in order to fly your children are certainly very peculiar the district attorney's wife began i have to think so every time i see them what do all your admonitions help i should like to know nature will have its way not one of my children has ever been so impertinent to say the least as your little daughter is already i am very sorry you should have to tell me that mrs maxa replied isn't it possible that the child should have unconsciously said an impertinence i hope you have never had a similar experience with my older children no i could not say that mrs kinnipel answered but i should say that all of them have inherited the love of preaching especially your daughter mia children can be unlike by disposition without its being necessary that one of them should constantly make sermons to the other my children are very often of different opinions but i could not say that they preach much to each other said mrs maxa it is certainly mia's habit to do so and that is why she is not able to keep peace with her friends i suppose you received a letter from our rector telling you of the refusal to teach the boys any further this was said with a less severe intonation mrs maxa confirmed the statement so the change we have looked forward to has really come the visitor continued and my husband agrees with me that prompt action should be taken he is going to the city tomorrow. In fact, he has left already in order to visit his sister on the way. 
he will look for a suitable attractive home in town that the three boys can move into next fall you do not mean to tell me mrs knipple that your husband is ordering living quarters for bruno too mrs maxa said in consternation oh yes and this is why my husband has sent me here to let you know how glad he is to do it for you the attorney's wife said soothingly he was positively sure that you would be glad if he decided and ordered everything to suit himself and you but mrs knipple i am not prepared for this i have not even spoken to my brother about it you know very well that he is the children's guardian mrs maxa was quite unable to hide her excitement you can be reassured for we have thought of that too the visitor said with a slightly superior smile my husband's sister does not live very far from mr falcon and sills so he planned to visit your brother and talk the plan over with him this calmed mrs maxa a trifle for her brother knew already how it stood between the three comrades and how little she wanted them to live together but she could not help wondering why these people were trying to force the boys to live together i do not really understand why the boys should have to live together she said with animation they do not profess to feel much friendship for each other and never seek each other out you yourself mrs knippel do not seem to get a very good impression from my children's ways i do not see why you wish your sons to live with mine at all it is a matter of decorum the attorney's wife replied and my husband agrees with me what would people in town say if the sons of the two best families here who have always studied together should not live together everybody would think that something special had happened between the families both parties will only gain in respect by joining i do not believe that people in the city will be interested in what the three boys are doing said mrs maxa smiling a little that same moment the door was flung wide open with a triumphant face as if she wanted to say just look whom i bring you here maisley stood on the threshold leaning apollonie in the latter hastily retreated no no maisley she said quite frightened you should have told me that there was company mrs knippel had risen to take her departure it seems to me that other visitors are greeted very joyfully by your children well i must say they have rather odd tastes she said walking towards the door apollonie is a very old friend of ours all the children love her very much they may have inherited this attachment though mrs maxa replied with a smile i only want to say one more word said the lady turning round before stepping outside the door the scene your son kurt enacted to-day in front of apollonie's cottage with his crowd of miscellaneous friends can only be called a vulgar noise but mrs maxa did not yet know what kurt had done the visitor turned to go now as it seemed not worth her while to waste words about it as soon as the field was clear maisley rushed out of a hiding-place pulling apollonie with her the old woman was terribly apologetic about having gone into the room when she had told maisley that she wanted to see her mother the little girl had taken her there without any further ado she informed the rector's widow that she had come to her with a quite incredible communication mrs maxa found it necessary at this point to interrupt her friend she had noticed that maisley was all ears to what was coming maisley go and play with lippo till i come she said please tell me about it afterwards apollonie was maisley's instruction before going to do as she was bid apollonie's communication took a considerable time she had just left when the family sat down to a belated supper kurt swallowed his meal with signs of immoderate impatience as soon as possible he rushed away after having given his promise not to come home late the friends that were to join him in this expedition had to be sought out first 
when he neared the meeting-place he felt a little disappointed in the twilight he could see that there was a smaller number assembled than he had hoped for this certainly was not the crowd he had had together at noon when at least all the boys had promised to take part in his new enterprise they were afraid they were afraid all voices cried together kurt heard now while each screamed louder than the other that many boys and girls had left when the darkness was beginning to fall among the few that were left there were only four girls it doesn't matter said kurt there are enough people still whoever is afraid may leave we must start, though, because we have rather far to go. We are not going up the well-known path, because Mr. Trius watches for apple-hunters there till midnight, I think. That suits us exactly, for he must not hear us. We are going up to the woods at the back of the castle. First we'll sing our challenge, then comes a pause to give the ghost enough time, then again, and after that, for the third and last time, if there really is a ghost, he will have appeared by then. You can understand that he won't let himself be teased by us, so when he hasn't come, we can tell everybody what we did. Then they'll see that it is only a superstition, and that there is no wandering ghost in Wildenstein. Forward now. The little crowd set out full of spirits and eagerness for the adventure, for Kurt had clearly shown them that there could be no ghost. To go up there and sing loudly to a non-existent ghost was capital fun. Furthermore, they looked forward to boasting of their daring deed afterwards. Faster and faster they climbed, so that only half of the usual time was taken in reaching their destination. It was dark at first, but the moon suddenly came out from behind the clouds, cheerfully lighting up the fields. Having reached the rear of the castle hill, they hurried up the incline and into the pine woods, where the trees stood extremely close together. This made it very dark, despite the fact that the wood was small. Soon clouds covered the moon, and the little band became stiller and stiller. Here and there, one of the children sneaked off, and did not reappear. Three of the girls, after mysteriously whispering together, were gone too, and with them several more stole away, for there was a strange rustling in the bushes. Kurt with Lux and his enterprising sister Clevy were at the extreme front. When it became very still, Kurt turned around. "'Come along. Where are you all?' he called back. "'We are coming,' several voices answered from some children immediately behind him. It was Max." Hans and Simi, and then Stofi and Rudy behind them, but they were all. Kurt halted. Where is the whole troop? asked Kurt. Let us wait till they catch up. We must all stay together up there. But none followed. All the answer Kurt got to his question was the screeching of an owl. Oh, they've gone. They were afraid, said Max. They were there, though, when we came into the woods. The cowards, Clevy cried indignantly to be afraid of trees that certainly is funny well we aren't afraid anyway otherwise we shouldn't be here any more call to those who are gone max called back come on now come kurt commanded there are eight of us left to sing so we must all sing very loud on they went speedily till they could see the end of the woods one of the gray towers was peering between the trees they had at last reached their goal here we stop said kurt but we must not go outside the woods. The Wildenstein ghost might otherwise step up to us. If he walks around the terrace, here we go. Kurt began, and all the others vigorously joined him. Come out, you ghost of Wildenstein, for we are not afraid. We've come here in the bright moonshine to sing the song we've made. Come out, come out, and leave your den. You'll never scare the folks again. Everything was quiet roundabout. 
only the night wind was soughing in the old pine trees between them there was a clear view of the terrace which the moon was now flooding with light the space before the castle lay peaceful and deserted we must sing again said kurt he didn't hear us if he doesn't give us an answer this time we'll tell him what we know then we'll sing fearfully loud hurrah we have a certain sign there is no ghost in wildenstein then we'll start again clevy who was gifted with a far carrying voice began come out you ghost of wildenstein and the boys with voices of thunder chimed in for we are not afraid just look who is coming there who can it be said kurt staring at the terrace an incredibly tall figure which could not possibly be human was wandering across the terrace with slow steps it could not be a tree either for it slowly moved over towards the woods did he really see straight or was it the moonlight which was throwing a flitting shadow that moment max who was very big turned about and fled the four others followed headlong leaving only lux and clevy beside kurt the horrible figure came nearer and nearer and it could now be clearly discerned full moonlight fell on the armor he was garbed in and made it as well as the high helmet with waving plumes glitter brightly a long mantle fell from his shoulders down to his high riding boots half hiding his fearful figure could this be a human creature no impossible no living man could be as enormous as that with measured steps the apparition walked silently towards the pine trees here the three singers stood horror-stricken, not uttering a sound. Lux, like one crazed, suddenly rushed headlong away between the trees and down the hill. Clevy once more looked at the approaching figure with wide-open eyes. Before following her brother, she wanted to see exactly what the night looked like. Kurt was left quite alone, and still the fearful creature stalked nearer. With a desperate leap he sprang to one side and left the woods abruptly. Hurrying towards the meadow, he ran down the mountain, leaped over first one hedge, then a second. Then he flew on, till he stood in the little garden at home, where a peaceful light from the living room seemed to greet him. Breathing deeply, he ran in, and his mother met him at the door. "'Oh, is it you, Kurt?' she said kindly. "'But you are a little late, after all. Was it so hard to leave the beautiful moonlight, or was it such fun rushing about?' but kurt you are entirely out of breath come sit down a moment with me after that you have to go to bed all the others have gone already usually kurt would have adored being able to sit alone with his mother and have all her attention directed towards him this he could not enjoy now might not his mother ask him further details about his walk so he said that he preferred to go to bed right away and his mother understood that he was glad to get the rest after running about so ceaselessly only when kurt lay safely and quietly in bed could he think over what had happened and how cowardly he had acted after all his mother had clearly told him that there was no ghost in wildenstein whom then had he seen in armor and helmet and with a long mantle it could not have been mr trius because he was a short stout person whereas the apparition was a tree-high figure might it be a sentinel at the castle who was ordered to go about maybe the old castle barons had always wished an armed sentinel to keep watch if only he had not run away he could have let the sentinel walk up to him and then he could have told him of his intention 
the sentinel could only have been pleased by his endeavor to get rid of such an old superstition if only he had not run away oh yes now that kurt was safely under cover and bruno's breathing beside him spoke of his big brother's nearness it seemed easy enough to act bravely if only he had done it the thing he could not explain to himself was how anybody could be so horribly tall that was hardly credible kurt felt at bottom quite sure that it was impossible for anybody to look like that if only i could have told mother about it he sighed but he felt dreadfully ashamed she had absolutely forbidden him troubling himself about this matter even with his intention to get rid of the talk he had acted against her command well and what had he accomplished more than ever the whole village would say to-morrow that the ghost of wildenstein was wandering about again furthermore he did not know how to gainsay it if it only had not been so huge when the mother stepped up to her children's bedside later on as usual she stopped a little while before kurt hearing him moaning in his sleep she thought he was ill kurt she said quietly does something hurt you he woke up oh mother he said seizing her hand is it you i thought the ghost of wildenstein was stretching out his enormous arm towards me you were dreaming don't think about such things in daytime the mother said kindly have you forgotten your evening prayer after the excitements of the day yes i had so much to think about that i forgot it kurt admitted say it now then you will fall asleep more quietly said the mother but please kurt never forget that god hears our prayers and comforts and calms us only when we open our hearts entirely to him you know kurt don't you that we must hide nothing from him kurt moaned yes in a very low voice after giving him a good-night kiss the mother withdrew end of chapter four chapter five of maisley this librivox recording is in the public domain maisley by johanna spirey chapter five oppressive air it seemed as if for several days a heavy atmosphere was weighing down the limbs of all mrs max's household so that its wonted cheerfulness was entirely absent even the mother went about more silently than usual for the worry about bruno's future weighed heavily on her heart she had written to her brother to come to her as soon as possible so that they could talk the matter over and come to a united decision he had answered her that urgent business was forcing him to a journey to south germany and that it would be time enough to settle the matter after his return bruno having heard about the situation was already wrought up by the mere possibility of his being obliged to live with the two boys secretly he was already making the wildest plans in order to escape such an intolerable situation why shouldn't he simply disappear and go to spain like the young baron of wallerstetten probably the young gentleman had some money to dispose of while he had none he might hire himself out as a sailor however and travel to china or australia he might study the inhabitants and peculiarities of these countries and write famous books about them in that way he could make a good livelihood might he not join a band of wandering singers 
His mother had already told him how well his voice sounded, and that she wanted him to develop it later on. With wrinkled brows, Bruno sat about whole evenings, not saying one word but meditating on his schemes. He found it extremely hard to tell which one of them was best and to think of means to carry it out. Mia's forehead, also, was darkened by heavy clouds, but she was not as silent as her brother. Every few moments exclamations of pain or indignation escaped her, but had she not fared badly? When they had moved from Sills to Nola, Elvira had immediately approached Mia as if she wanted to become her friend. Mrs. Kinnapel had sent her an invitation in order to cement the bonds of friendship, and she had done the same with Bruno, who was to become her son's close comrade. It was quite true that Bruno had declared from the beginning that he would not make friends with the two who were to share his studies, and every time they came together fights and quarrels were the result. But Mia had a heart which craved friendship. She was overcome with happiness by the advances of the Knippel family, and immediately gave herself to her new friend with absolute confidence and warm love. Soon many differences of opinion and of natural disposition showed themselves in the two girls, but Mia, in her overflowing joy of having found a friend, was little troubled by this at first. She thought that all these things would come right by and by, when they came closer to each other. She hoped that the desired harmony would come when they became better acquainted, but the more the two girls got to know each other, the deeper their differences grew, and every attempt at a clear understanding only ended in a wider estrangement. Mrs. Maxa had always tried to fill her children with a contempt not only of all wrong, but also of low and ugly actions. She had made an effort to keep her children from harmful influences and to implant in them a hate for these things. Whenever Mia found Elvira of a different opinion in such matters, she was assured that she was in the right by the mother's opinion, which coincided with her own. So she felt as if Elvira should be shown the right way, too. Whenever this happened, Elvira turned from her and told her that she wanted to hear no sermons. So the two had not yet become friends, despite the fact that Mia was still hoping and wishing for it, and her brother Kurt had proved himself in the right when he had doubted it from the beginning. Since the incident with Lonely, when Mia had told her friend her opinion in perfectly good faith, Elvira had not spoken to her any more and had remained angry. But Mia's nature was not inclined to sulk. Whenever she felt herself injured, words of indignation poured out from her like fiery lava from a crater. After that, everything was settled. She had been obliged to sit day after day on the same bench with the sulking girl, and to come to school and leave again without saying a word. Should this situation, which had already become intolerable to her, continue forever? Mia could only moan with this prospect in view. She was glad that Kurt was in a strangely depressed mood, too, and hardly ever spoke. He would otherwise have been sure to make several horrible songs about her experiences with the moping Elvira. Kurt, who was usually cheerful, had been as terribly depressed for the last few days as if he had been carrying a heavy weight around with him all the time. He had kept something from his mother, and therefore the weight seemed to get heavier and heavier. It oppressed Kurt more than he could say that he had not immediately confessed his fault. But how could the mother have believed him when he told her 
that he had seen a figure which could not possibly be human. He really felt like a traitor towards his mother. All people in Nola believed anew that a ghost of Wilderstein went about, for the apparition had actually been seen. Kurt knew quite well that it was all his fault. He hardly dared to look at his mother, and he longed for somebody to help him. He was filled with the craving to be happy again. Only Lippo and Maisley pursued their usual occupations and were untroubled by heavy thoughts. As soon as Maisley noticed that the usual cheerfulness had departed from the house, she tried to get into a different atmosphere at once. She always knew a place of refuge in such a case. "'Oh, Mama, I have to go and see Apollonie,' she would repeatedly say with firm conviction to her mother. Having the greatest confidence in Apollonie's guarding hand, and knowing, besides, that Maisley's visits always were welcome, the mother often let her youngest go there. The little girl was well able to find her way to the cottage, and always went without attempting any digressions from the path. In the evening, Lonnelly generally accompanied her home. Maisley would arrive carrying a large bunch of flowers, the inevitable gift from Apollonie. Presenting them to her mother, she would shout, "'There they are again! Just look! I have some for you again, mother!' The mother then looked full of delight at the bunch and said, "'Yes, those are the same lovely mignonette that used to grow in the castle garden. Apollonie has transplanted them into her own. But they were much finer in the castle. Nowhere could their equal have been found.' she concluded, inhaling the delicious fragrance of the flowers. Maisley promptly poked her little nose into the bouquet, uttering an exclamation of unspeakable delight. Lonnelly's eyes were very merry again, and she was full of her usual gaiety. Since Kurt had made his little speech and had rehabilitated Lonnelly's honor before the schoolchildren, the grandmother was as kind to her as of yore, and never mentioned the shame bench again. Lonnelly's heart was simply filled with gratefulness for what he had done, and she often wished, in turn, for an opportunity to help him out of some trouble. She had noticed that Kurt was no longer the merriest and most entertaining of the children, and had given up being their leader in all gay undertakings. What could be the matter? Lonnelly hated to see him that way, and could not help pondering about this remarkable change. Being extremely observant, she had noticed that it was very hard to find out the truth about the night expedition of the castle. All the boys' answers consisted in dark allusions to the fact that the ghost was wandering about Wildenstein more than ever, as not one of them wanted to admit the hasty retreat before the ghost had even been properly inspected. They only dropped vague and terrifying words about the matter. Brave little Clevy who usually relished telling of her dangerous adventures when they had turned out well, was as silent as a mouse about it all. Whenever Lonnelly asked her a straight question needing a straight answer, Clevy ran away, and Lonnelly got none. The report was sure to have some foundation, and the most noticeable thing of all was that Kurt's change had come since that night. That same day he had taken the load off her heart and had been so gay and merry, so Lonnelly put two and two together, and having made these observations, was filled with sudden wrath. As soon as school was ended, she rushed to the astonished Clevy. "'Oh, I know what you have done, Clevy. Kurt was your leader, and you didn't obey him. You all ran away because you were afraid. Oh, you have spoiled it all for him.' "'Yes, and what about him? He was afraid himself,' Clevy cried out excitedly, for the reproach had stung her. 
I could see with what terrified bounds he flew down the mountainside. But he was afraid, too, do you really mean? But of what? Lonnelly questioned further. Of what? That is easily said of what? You ought to have seen that huge creature coming towards us from the castle. Since it had come out that they had been so frightened, Clevy now told in detail about the horribly tall armored knight with the high boots and the long cloak hanging down to his boot-tops. Was the mantle blue? Lonnelly, who had been listening intensely, interrupted. It was night-time, and you can imagine we did not see the color clearly, Clevy said indignantly. But the color has nothing to do with it. It was the length, the horrible, horrible length of that thing. It looked just too awful. He had a high helmet on his head besides, with a still higher bunch of black plumes that nodded in the most frightful way. A gleam of joy sparkled in Lonnelly's eyes. Flying away like an arrow, she sought out Mrs. Max's house. Kurt was standing at the hawthorn hedge in front of the garden with his school bag still slung around him. He had not rushed in ahead of the others according to his custom. With puckered brow he was pulling one leaf after another from the hedge. Then he flung them all away, as if he wanted each to rid himself of a disagreeable thought. Kurt, Lonely called to him, please wait a moment. Don't go in yet, for I want to tell you something. When Lonely stood beside Kurt, she was suddenly filled with embarrassment. She knew exactly what she had to say, but it would sound as if she was trying to examine Kurt. This kept her from beginning. Tell me what you want, Lonely, Kurt encouraged her when he saw her hesitation. So Lonely began. I wanted to ask you if, if, oh, Kurt, are you so sad on account of what happened at the castle and because you thought there was no ghost? I don't want to hear anything more about it, Kurt said evasively, pulling a handful of leaves from the hedge and throwing them angrily to the ground. But it might only have been a man after all, Lonely continued quietly. Yes, yes, that is easily said, Lonely. How can you talk when you haven't even seen him? Kurt flung the last leaves away impatiently and tried to go, but Lonely would not yield. Just wait a moment, Kurt, she entreated. It is true that I did not see him, but Clevy told me all about it. I know why he looked that way and why he was so enormous. I also know where he got the armor, the long blue mantle, and the high black plumes. What? Kurt exclaimed, staring at Lonely as if she were a curious ghost herself. How can you know anything about it? Certainly I know about it, Lonely assured him. Listen, you must remember that Grandmother lived a long time at the castle, so she has told me everything that went on up there. In the lowest story there is a huge old hall, and the walls are covered with weapons and things like armor and helmets. In one corner there is an armored knight, with a black-plumed helmet on his head. Whenever the young gentleman from the castle wanted to play a special prank, one of them would take the knight on his shoulders, and the knightly long mantle would be hung over his shoulders so as to cover him down to his high boot-tops. This figure looked so terrible coming along the terrace that everybody always ran away, even in bright daylight, once the two young ladies shrieked loudly when they suddenly saw the fearful knight. That pleased the young gentleman more than anything. Oh, then my mother saw him too, and knows what he looks like, Kurt exclaimed, with a sudden start, for he had been breathlessly listening. Certainly, for she was one of the young ladies, Lonely said. 
but now nobody is at the castle except mr trius and he couldn't have been there kurt objected i know that he sneaks about the meadows till late in the evening in order to catch the apple thieves that is so far from the little woods that he could not possibly have heard us but it was mr trius just the same you can believe me kurt Lonnelly assured her friend my grandmother has often said that mr trius always knows everything that is going on he seems to hide behind the hedges and then suddenly comes out from behind the trees when one least expects him you know that the boys have known about your plan several days and that they don't always talk in a low voice besides they have been trying to get a hold of apples every night you can be sure that mr trius heard distinctly what your plan was yes that is true but i have to go to mother now kurt exclaimed as he started towards the house then turning back once more he said thank you ever so much lonnelly you have done me a greater service than you can realize by telling me everything nothing could have made me happier than what you have said as he spoke these words he shook the little girl's hand with all his might the boy ran into the house while Lonnelly hastened home with leaps and bounds for her heart was thrilling with great joy where is mother where is mother kurt impetuously asked lippo whom he met in the hall carrying a large water pitcher entrusted to him by kathy one knows well enough where mamma must be when it is nearly lunchtime you came home late from school lippo answered carefully trotting away with his fragile burden yes i did you little sentinel of good order kurt laughed out passing lippo in order to hasten to the dining-room now kurt could laugh again oh you are as far as that already he cried out in surprise when he found everybody settling down to lunch what a shame i wanted to tell you something mother she gazed at him questioningly he had not had any urgent news for her lately and she was glad to hear his clear voice and see his merry eyes again you must wait now till after lunch kurt she said kindly for you were rather late today yes i was rather slow at first kurt informed her then lonnelly ran after me to tell me something she has found out i have often said before that lonnelly is the most clever child in all nola besides being the most friendly and obliging one could possibly find even if she is only brought up by simple apollony she is more refined at bottom than a girl i know who adorns her outside with the most beautiful ribbons and flowers I would rather have a single Lonnelly than a thousand Elviras. Lippo had been anxiously looking after Kurt for some time. Here comes the beans, and you have your plate still full of soup, he said excitedly. Kurt, I think that it would be better for you to eat your soup instead of uttering such strange speeches. Besides, we all agree with you about Lonnelly. I think that she is an unusually nice and sympathetic child. Oh, Kurt, the observant little Maisley exclaimed. Do you have to talk so much all at once because you talked so little yesterday the day before yesterday and the day before that yes that is the exact reason maisley kurt said with a laugh his soup was soon eaten for his spirits had fully come back now and in the shortest time he had emptied his plate kurt was only able to get his mother to himself after school the elder children were busy at that time and the two little ones had taken a walk to apollony his mother, having clearly understood his wish to have a thorough talk with her, had reserved this quiet hour for him. Kurt made an honest confession of his disobedience without once excusing himself by saying that he had only done it to destroy all foolish superstition and by this means to become her helper. 
He could therefore tell her without reserve how terribly he had been cast down the last few days. The weight had been very heavy on his heart before his confession, because he had been so ashamed of the miserable end of the undertaking. He had, moreover, been very much afraid that she would tell him that no ghost of Wildenstein existed, after he himself had seen the incredible apparition. What Lonnelly had told him had relieved him immensely. Now his mother, who had seen the terrible sight herself, could understand his fright. "'Oh, little mother, I hope you are not angry with me any more,' Kurt begged her heartily. "'I shall never do anything any more you don't want me to, for I know now what it feels like. I know that this was my punishment for doing what you had forbidden me to do.' When his mother saw that Kurt had realized his mistake and had humbly borne the punishment, she did not scold him any further. She confirmed everything Lonnelly had told him about the night. She also agreed with the little girl that the watchful Mr. Trius had probably discovered long ago what Kurt had planned to do that night. With the horrible apparition, he had probably meant to punish and banish the boys for good. "'Oh, Kurt,' the mother concluded, "'I hope I can rely on you from now on not to have anything more to do with the matter of the fabulous ghost of Wildenstein.' Kurt could give his honest promise, for he had enough of his endeavor to prove the non-existence of the ghost. It put him into the best spirits that there had been nothing supernatural about it, and that he was able again to talk with his mother as before. With a loud and jubilant song he joined his brothers and sisters. Mrs. Maxa was also very happy that Kurt had regained his cheerfulness. What met her ears now, though, was not Kurt singing, but loud cries of delight, Opening the door, she distinguished the well-known calls of Uncle Philip, Uncle Philip. So her longed-for brother was near at last. Her two little ones, who had met with him on their stroll home, were bringing him along. All five children shouted loudly in order to let their uncle know how welcome he was. Oh, how glad I am that you have come at last. Welcome, Philip. Please come in. Mrs. Maxa called out to him. I'll come as soon as it is possible, he replied, breathing heavily. He held a child with each hand, and three were between his feet, all welcoming him tumultuously, so that for the moment it was impossible for him to move forward. Gradually the whole knot moved into the house and towards the uncle's armchair. Here ten busy hands fastened him down so that he should not at once get away. "'You rascals, you,' the uncle said, quite exhausted. "'A man is lucky to escape from you with his life. Are you trying to throttle your godfather, Lipo?' Whoever put two fat little arms about a godfather's neck like that? You seem to have climbed the chair from behind, and to have only your foot on the arm of the chair. If you slip, I shall be strangled. Who then will find out for whom I brought a harmonica that's buried in the depths of my coat pocket? It gives forth the most beautiful melodies you ever heard, when you have learned to play it. A harmonica was the most wonderful thing Lippo could imagine. His neighbor in school, a little girl called Tonnelly, owned one and could play whole songs on it he had always thought it splendid if a harmonica was really destined for him he had better let go of uncle's arm uncle philip dove into his deep pockets with both hands and soon the wonderful coveted object really came to light and how much bigger and finer it was than tonnelly's little instrument such a one must be able to sound the loveliest tones lippo holding his treasure in his hand could hardly believe it to be his own property but Uncle Philip reassured him, saying, "'Come, Lippo, take it. The harmonica is meant for you.' There were presents for all the children in the depths of the pockets, and one child after another ran away to show his gift to his mother. Lippo saw and heard nothing else just then. 
in expectation of the melodies which would well up he blew with all his might quite horrible ear-shattering sounds lippo you must learn how to play a little first everything has to be learned give it to me said uncle philip you see you must do this way setting the instrument to his lips and pushing it up and down he played the merriest tunes lippo looked up in speechless admiration at his godfather he was tremendously impressed that uncle philip could do everything even blow a harmonica which generally only boys were able to do how fine it sounded he was sure that nobody else could bring forth such beautiful melodies lippo was interrupted by his brothers and sisters who were noisily announcing supper so uncle philip was taken in their midst into the dining-room and he might have been likened to a prisoner of war captured by the victors amidst shouts of triumph the mother had purposely ordered a supper a little early and she noticed that her brother was satisfied with the arrangement. If his intention had been to shorten the time he could have with the children, he had no intention of cheating them of amusement, and he told them so many entertaining things that they felt they had never had a better time with him. At last, however, it was quiet in the living room. Uncle Philip was sitting there alone, waiting for his sister, who had gone upstairs with the children. First of all, Philip, she said on her return, as she settled down beside him, what shall be done with Bruno? I am sure you told Mr. Kinnapel not to engage board and lodging for him. On the contrary, I gave him full power to do so, the brother replied. Mr. Kinnapel gave me the impression that you would agree to it and would be very grateful if he took the matter in hand, so I thought that that would be the simplest way out. It won't be so very terrible if the boys live together. Don't always imagine the worst, but I must tell you something else. Uncle Philip seemed to be rather glad to pass quickly over the hard problem. He guessed, in fact, that his communication would cause his sister great consternation, and he had guessed rightly. In her fright over his first word, she had not even heard the last. "'How could you do such a thing?' she began to complain. "'I can see quite clearly what will happen without unduly imagining anything. The low nature and character of the two boys rouses Bruno's ire, and he constantly flies into a rage when he is with them. It is my greatest sorrow that he can't control himself.' What on earth will happen if the three are compelled to be together daily, nay, constantly, and will even live together? The matter frightens me more than you can realize, Philip, and now you have made it impossible for me to change the plan. But, Maxa, can't you see that I could not act otherwise? Mr. Kinnapel was terribly anxious to arrange it all, and you know how quickly he is offended. He always imagines that his low birth is in his way, for he cannot understand our utter indifference to all the money he has heaped up. You must not be so anxious about it. It can't possibly last very long, the brother consoled her. There is sure to be a violent quarrel between them soon, and as soon as that happens, I promise to take the matter in hand. That will give us good grounds to separate them. The prospect of a horrible fight was, however, no consolation to Mrs. Maxa. But she said nothing more, for the matter was irrevocably settled. I have to tell you something now which will put you in a happier mood, he began clearly relieved that his unpleasant communication had been made yesterday evening the two ladies from hanover who were my travelling companions some time ago came to ask my advice about something which troubled them very much they have received an urgent call to return home to their aged mother who has fallen very ill and has asked to see them the little girl who is in their care however has been so sick for a few days that they had to call the doctor they summoned him again yesterday in order to consult him as to whether there might be danger if the child travelled. He told them positively that they could not think of letting her go now, and that she might not be able to go for weeks. A slow fever showed that she was on the point of serious illness. 
which would not quickly pass. The ladies were extremely frightened, and told the doctor their dilemma, for they were both absolutely compelled to leave. One of them might be able to return in about two weeks, but they had to find a reliable person in the meantime who could nurse the child. This was terribly difficult for them as strangers. The doctor's advice was to bring the young invalid to the hospital in Sills, where she would be well taken care of, and he could see her every day. The ladies wanted my opinion before deciding. They realized that doctors always favor hospitals because the care of their patients is made simple and easy, so they wondered if I advised them to have the young girl sent there. I told them that the place was not at all badly equipped, but that it was rather small, and the patients were, of course, very mixed. When I asked the ladies if it would not be better if the child's parents decided that difficult question, I received the information that Leonore von Wallerstetten was an orphan, and that the aunt who had put her in their care had also died. Oh, Philip, now there is no doubt any more that she is our Leonore's little daughter, Mrs. Maxa cried in the greatest agitation. Oh, Philip, how could you ever advise them to send her to the hospital? Why didn't you say right away that your sister would immediately take the child into her house? How could I do that? Just think a moment, Maxa, said the brother. Did you want me to add to your troubles and anxieties by bringing a patient sick with fever into your house? It might turn out to be a dangerous illness, which all your five might catch. What should you have said to me then? Philip, I shall go to Sills with you tomorrow, and I'll ask you to take me to the ladies. I want them to know who I am, of course. I shall tell them that I have the right, as her mother's nearest friend, to receive Leonore into my house and to nurse her. I am sure that the little patient can take the trip in your closed carriage." You can quickly go to the doctor to tell him of our plan and have the carriage sent to us. Please do this for me, Philip. I can't stand that the child of our Leonore should go to a strange hospital all by herself. Mrs. Maxa had spoken with such decision that her brother had listened to her in great surprise. So you have resolved to carry this through, Maxa. Are you sure that you won't have to take it all back after your excitement has vanished? He asked her. You can rely on me, Philip. I have absolutely made up my mind to do it, the sister assured him. You must help me now to put it through. I shall be able to take care of things when she gets here, but do all in your power to prevent the ladies from putting obstacles in my path. You see, I do not even know them. I shall do whatever you wish, the listener said willingly. It certainly is hard to tell where a woman will set up complaints and where she will suddenly not know either fear or obstacles. I have already told the two Miss Rimkes about you. As soon as I knew the child's name, I realized the situation. I told the ladies about your being the best friend of their charge's mother, and that you would surely go to see her now, and then in the hospital. This pleased them greatly. Uncle Philip now began to lay my new plans for the morrow. His sister had to give her promise to be ready very early in order to reach Sills in good time, for the patient was to be taken to the hospital in the course of the forenoon. He also gave her all the needed instructions relating to the coachman and the carriage. She listened quietly till he had finished, and then said, "'I have some news for you, too. Just think, Baron Bruto has come back. He arrived in the middle of the night when nobody could see him. He is absolutely alone now in the desolate castle. I just imagine how he must feel to be within those walls again where he spent his happy years with all those loved ones he has not seen since he left the castle in a fit of terror.' "'Yes, and why did it happen? Wasn't it his own will?' the brother said harshly. "'Whenever you speak about him, your voice takes on a tone as if you were speaking about a misunderstood angel, 
Why did the raging lion come back all of a sudden? Please, Philip, don't be so hard, his sister said. He is entirely left alone now. Is sorrow easier to bear when it is our own doing? I heard that he was ill. That is probably the reason why he has come home. I know all this from Apollonie, who is in communication with Mr. Trius. She keeps on scheming to find a way to set the rooms in order for her young master, as she still calls him. She knows how his mother would wish everything to be for her son. I understand quite well that she worries night and day about the state things are in at the castle. Her former master has for nurse, servant, cook, and valet only that peculiar and ancient Mr. Trius. She can hardly think about it without wishing that she might do something for her old friend. The poor woman is so anxious to make his life at the castle a little more the way it used to be in the old times. For heaven's sake, Maxa, I hope you are not trying to interfere. Do you intend to undertake that too? The brother exclaimed in perturbation. If he wanted things different, he certainly would find a way. Please have nothing to do with it, otherwise you will be sorry. You can be perfectly reassured, for unfortunately nothing whatever can be done, Mrs. Maxa replied. If I had known a way to do something for him, I should have done it. My great wish is to let little sunshine into the closed-up, somber rooms, and maybe even a little deeper. I had great hopes of doing something through Apollonie, who knows so much about the castle. But she has explained the state of affairs to me. She was going to enter and take things in hand as soon as she heard from Mr. Trius that her master had returned, for she still considers herself his servant as in times gone by. It was her intention, naturally, to put everything into the usual order in the house. But Mr. Trius won't even let her go into the garden. He let her know that he had received orders not to let anyone into the place. His master knew no one here and had no intention of meeting anyone. I know quite well, therefore, that I shall be unable to gratify my great desire of doing something for that miserable, lonely man. So much the better, the brother said, quite relieved. I am glad that the villain has bolted you out himself. If I should have tried to keep you out, you certainly would have found means to resist me, I know. I willingly admit it, Mrs. Maxa replied with a smile. But, Philip, I should consider it wise for us to go to bed now, if we have to make an early start for Sills tomorrow. Brother and sister separated, but Mrs. Maxa had many arrangements to make before she came to rest. If the ladies would consent to put the little girl in her charge, she meant to bring her immediately home with her. Therefore, everything had to be made ready for the little patient. About midnight, Mrs. Maxa still went to and fro in a bedroom on the top floor, which was entirely isolated. When everything necessary had been made ready, she tried to place various embellishments in the little chamber. Finally, she placed in the middle of the table a round bowl, which was to be filled tomorrow with the most beautiful roses from her garden. Mrs. Maxa wanted the child of her adored Leonore to receive a pleasant impression from her room in the strange new house. When the morning sun would shine in through the open windows and the green slope of the castle would send its greeting to her, she did not want little Leonore to feel dissatisfied with her new quarters. With this thought, Mrs. Maxa happily closed the door of the room behind her and sought out her own chamber. End of chapter 5「
Early next morning, brother and sister started towards the valley. Before going, Mrs. Maxa had given her orders and had arranged for Maisley to spend the day with Apollonie in order to prevent her from getting into mischief. As it was a sunshiny morning and the paths were dry, walking was delightful. The distance they had to traverse occupied about two hours, but it did not seem long. As soon as brother and sister arrived in Sills, they went to see the two Mrs. Remke. Both ladies were kneeling before a large trunk surrounded by heaps of clothes, shoes, books, and boxes, and a hundred trifles besides. When the visitors arrived, they immediately stood before the open door of the room used for packing. Mrs. Max's first impulse was to withdraw with an excuse, but the ladies had jumped up already and most cordially greeted their kind friend, Mr. Falcon, whom they called their helper and savior in all difficulties. They received his sister joyfully, too, for they had been most eager to know her. Both ladies regretted that their meeting had to take place in a moment when their house appeared in its most unfavorable light. Mrs. Maxa assured them, however, that she understood the preparations for their impending trip, and said that she would not disturb them longer than was necessary. She intended, therefore, to voice her request immediately. Mr. Falcon, steering straight for some chairs he had discovered, brought them for the ladies, despite all the assorted objects on the floor. Mrs. Maxa spoke of her intention of taking the child to her house, and her sincere hope that there would be no objection and the ladies could feel their visitors' great eagerness manifested in her words. They, on their part, did not hide the great relief which this prospect gave them, and were extremely glad to leave their young charge in such good hands. "'It has been very hard for us to decide to leave Leonore behind,' one of them said. "'Unfortunately, we must go, and she is not able to travel. But as long as our plans seem to coincide so well, I shall ask you if it would be inconvenient to you if we put off the date of our return a week longer.' You must realize that we are taking the journey for the sake of our sick mother, and that everything is uncertain in such a case. One can never tell what change may come, and we might wish to stay a little longer. Mrs. Maxa hastened to assure them that nothing could suit her better than to keep Leonore in her house for several weeks, and she promised to send frequent news about the little girl's state of health. She begged them not to be anxious about her, and not to hurry back for Leonore's sake. As she was longing to see the child instead of remaining in their way, she begged to be allowed to greet Leonore. She was sure that her brother, who had already risen, also wanted to take his leave. As soon as he had seen how completely the ladies entered into his sister's plans, he wished to arrange the details, and so said that he was now going to the doctor in order to get his permission for the little trip. After obtaining this, as he sincerely hoped to do, he would prepare the carriage and send it directly to the house. As it was important, for the patient to make the journey during the best portion of the day. Thereupon he hastened off. One of the ladies took Mrs. Maxa to the sick room, which was situated in the uppermost story. "'You won't find Leonore alone,' she said. "'Her brother is with her. He is taking a trip through Switzerland with his teacher and some friends, and came here ahead of them in order to see his sister. His traveling companions will join him here tomorrow, and then they are all going back to Germany.' "'I fear that the poor boy will lose his day with his sister if I take her with me,' Mrs. Maxa said regretfully. "'Well, that can't be altered,' the lady quickly replied. "'We are all only too happy that you are willing to take Leonore into your house. Who knows how her stay in the hospital might have turned out? Poor Leonore was so frightened by the thought, but we knew no other way. It does not matter about her brother's visit, because they can see each other again in Hanover, for he is at a boarding school there.' 
the lady now opened a door and led mrs maxa into a room leonor look here is mrs bergmann a great friend of your mother's miss remke said and i am sure you will be glad of the news she is bringing you i shall accept your kind permission to get back to my work now mrs bergmann everything is ready for leonor because she was to leave for the hospital very shortly with these words she went out the sick child sat completely dressed on a bed in the corner of the room half reclining on the pillows mrs maxa had to agree with her brother who had said that she had her mother's large speaking eyes the same soft brown curls and the same serious expression on her delicately shaped little face mrs maxa would have easily recognized the child even without knowing her name leonora only looked more serious still in fact her glance was extremely sad and at that moment tears were hanging on her lashes for she had been crying the boy sitting by her got up and made a bow to the new arrival he had his father's gay blue eyes and his clear open brow after giving him her hand mrs maxa stepped up to the bed to greet leonore and was so deeply moved that she could barely speak my dear child she said seizing both slender hands you resemble your mother so much that i have to greet you as my own beloved child i loved her very much and we meant a great deal to each other you remind me of both your father and mother salo what happiness my friendship with your parents has brought me i want you both to be my children now for your parents were the best friends i ever had in the world this speech apparently met a response in the two children's hearts as answer leonore took mrs max's hand and held it tightly between her own and salo came close to her to show what confidence he felt then he said joyfully oh i am so glad that you have come you must help me comfort leonore she is terribly afraid of the hospital and all the strange people there she even imagines that she will die there alone and forsaken and was crying because she thinks that we won't see each other again i have to go so far away and i can't help it to-morrow they are coming to fetch me and then i have to go back to school what shall we do as to that mrs maxa replied nothing can be done but if leonore has to spend a little while in the hospital she won't be an absolute stranger there i won't let you be lonely for i shall often go to see you dear child and it is not even quite certain that you have to go there oh yes they are going to take me there this morning maybe quite soon said leonore listening anxiously she again grasped mrs maxa's hand as if it were her safety anchor mrs maxa did not gainsay her because she did not yet know what the doctor might decide all she could do to calm leonore was to tell her that she was not dangerously ill she might recover very quickly if she only stayed quiet for a while in that case she could soon see her brother again for the ladies had promised to take her home as soon as she was well mrs maxa had hardly said that when leonore's eyes again began to fill with tears i don't feel at home there we really have no home anywhere she said with suppressed sobs yes it is true we have no home anywhere salo exclaimed passionately but leonore you must have faith in me fighting against his rising agitation he quickly wiped away a tear from his eyes which were usually so bright it won't be so long till i have finished my studies and then i can do what i please then i shall try to find a little house for us both which will be our home i am going to get that if i have to work for twenty years in the fields till it is paid for salo's eyes had become sunny again during this speech he looked as if he would not have minded seizing a hoe that very moment rapid steps were now heard approaching the door was quickly opened 
and Miss Remke called out on entering. The carriage is at the door. Let us get ready, for I do not want the gentleman to wait. I am sure you will be so kind as to help me lift Leonore out of bed and carry her downstairs. Leonore had grown as white as a sheet from fright. May I ask if it is my brother's carriage, or Mrs. Maxa hesitated a little. Yes, certainly, the lady interrupted while she rapidly pulled some covers and shawls out of a wardrobe. Your brother has come himself in order to see that the carriage is well protected. He also means to give the coachman the directions himself, but we must not keep him waiting. What a kind friend he is! Mrs. Maxa had already lifted Leonore from her bed and was carrying her out. Please bring all the necessary things downstairs. I can do this easily alone, for she is as light as a feather, she called back to the lady who had hastened after her in order to help. Going downstairs, Mrs. Maxa said, Leonore, I am going to take you home with me now. The doctor is letting me do what I wished. You will stay with me till you are well again, and I shall take care of you. Shall you like to come with me? We know each other a little already, and I hope you won't feel so strange with us. Leonore, flinging both arms about Mrs. Max's neck, held her so tight that she could feel the little girl considered her no stranger any longer. Suddenly Leonore called back in jubilating tones, "'Salo! Salo! Did you hear?' Salo had heard her call, but comprehended nothing further. Miss Remke had piled such heaps of shawls and covers on his arms that one always slid down after the other, and he was obliged to pick them up again. As quickly as the circumstances allowed, he ran after his sister. Arrived at the carriage, Mrs. Maxa immediately looked about for her brother. She wanted to hand Leonore to him while she prepared everything in the conveyance for the child's comfort. He was already there. Understanding his sister's sign, he took the child into his arms, then lifted her gently into the carriage. His glance was suddenly arrested by the boy, who was standing beside the carriage with his burdens. With the most joyful surprise, he exclaimed, "'As sure as I am born, this must be a young Salo. It is written in his eyes. Give me your hand, boy. Your father was my friend, my best friend in the world, so we must be friends, too.' Salo's eyes expressed more and more surprise. This manner of being taken to a hospital seemed very odd to him. The strangest of all, however, was that Leonore sat in the corner of the carriage, smiling contentedly, for Mrs. Maxa had just whispered something into her ear. "'Do we have to say good-bye now, Leonore?' Salo asked, jumping up the carriage step. "'And can't I see you any more?' "'Salo,' Mrs. Maxa said, "'I was just thinking that you could sit beside the coachman if you want to. You can drive to Nola with us, for you will want to see where Leonore is going. I can have you brought back to-morrow, in time to meet your friends. Do you approve of that, Philip?' "'Certainly, certainly,' the brother answered. But if that is the plan, I am going along. I thought at first that this trip would prove a very mournful one. It seems more like a festal journey to me now, so I have come too. Salo and I will sit high up, and tomorrow I promise to bring him back here. With shining eyes, the boy climbed to the seat which the coachman had just relinquished. He understood now that the hospital was not to be their destination. With many hearty handshakes and good wishes, the two Remke ladies at last let their friend and adviser go. After many more last greetings to all the party, the carriage finally rolled towards the valley. Leonore was so exhausted that, leaning against her companion, she fell asleep. But she staunchly held on to Mrs. Max's hand, which seemed to her that of a loving mother. It was the first time in her life that she had felt this. On the high seat outside, the conversation was extremely lively. Young Salo had to tell where and how he lived, and then his companion explained in turn the places they were passing through, 
and told him whatever unusual had happened in the neighborhood. The uncle found out that neither Salo nor his sister had the slightest remembrance of their parents. The boy's earliest memory went back to an estate in Holstein, where they had lived with an elderly great-aunt, his grandmother's sister. They were about five or six years old when the aunt died, after which they were sent to Hanover to their present abode. Twice a year a relation of their great-aunt came to see them, but he was such a stiff, quiet gentleman that they could not enjoy his visits. It was, however, this man who always decided what was to be done with them. For the present they were to remain where they were till Salo had finished his studies. After that, the choice where to settle was left to them. "'But I know what I shall do first of all,' Salo added with sparkling eyes. Just then the old castle came in view. "'Oh, what a wonderful castle with great towers!' Salo exclaimed. "'It is all closed up. There can't be anybody living there.' It doesn't seem to be in ruins, though. What is it called? This is Castle Wildenstein, the boy's companion curtly answered, throwing a searching glance at the young baron. The latter looked innocently up at the gray towers, remarking that anybody who owned a castle like that would simply be the happiest man in the world. He knows nothing about the castle of his ancestors and the whole tragic story. So much the better, said Uncle Philip to himself. When the carriage drove up before Mrs. Max's door, everything was very quiet there, for the children were still in school. Kathy came running towards them with astonished eyes. She did not know at all what was going on, and that was a novelty for her. Salo had the reins pressed into his hands before he knew it. With a bound, his new friend had jumped to the ground and called back, "'If you don't move, the horses will stay quiet, too.' Quickly opening the carriage, he lifted Leonore out and carried her up to the little room which had been got ready for her. Mrs. Maxa followed at his heels. He then turned hurriedly back to his young substitute, for he felt a little uneasy at the thought of what might happen to the horses and carriage. The boy might want to drive about, and the horses might begin to jump. But no, stiff and immovable, the boy sat at his post, firmly holding the reins. Even now, when a party of eight feet came running towards him, Salo did not move. The calls of, Uncle Philip, Uncle Philip, sounded with more vigor than usual, because the children had not expected him back so soon, and therefore had to celebrate his coming with double energy. Uncle Philip was immediately surrounded, and eight arms held him so tight that there was no use in struggling. Just look at my young nobleman up there, he said, vainly trying to get free. He certainly knows what it means to remain firmly at his post and do his duty. If he had not held the reins tightly, your wild cries would have driven horses and carriage down the ravine long ago. All arms suddenly dropped and all eyes were directed towards the figure on the coachman's seat. In the unexpected joy of their uncle's return, nobody had noticed the boy. Uncle Philip, who was free now, let Salo down and introduced him to the children. Salo had a friendly greeting for everyone, and his eyes sparkled gaily when he shook their hands. His whole appearance was so attractive and engaging that the children immediately took a liking to him. With lively gestures, they surrounded him like an old acquaintance, so that Salo quickly felt that he had come among good friends. Even the reserved Bruno, whom nobody had ever been able to approach, linked Salo's arm confidentially in his in order to conduct the guest into the house. Here Bruno sat down beside Salo, and the two were immediately immersed in the most eager conversation. Mia, Kurt, and Lippo were hunting everywhere for their mother, for they had not the faintest idea where she had gone. 
when uncle philip came back he called them together and told them where their mother was and what she wished them to know through him as she had brought a sick child with her she could have no intercourse with the children for two or three days the doctor had also forbidden them to go up to the sick room and they were to do the best they could during that time if the sickness should get worse a nurse was to come to the house and then the mother would be free again if the illness was to be slight on the contrary the children would be admitted to the sick room and make leonore's acquaintance they could even help a little in her care for the mother would not then be obliged to keep them apart maisley was to be sent to apollonie every morning and was to spend the day there not to be able to have a glimpse of their mother for two or three days was depressing news indeed the three children's faces were absolutely disconcerted for the obstacles were clearly insurmountable well is this so terrible uncle philip said cheerily who needs to let his wings droop just think if you were in the place of the sick girl who has no mother at all can't you let her have yours for a few days no just think what is to follow your mother will come down then and bring you a new playmate leonore is friendly and charming and has sweeter manners than you have ever seen kurt is sure to make dozens of songs about her and mia will be carried away with enthusiasm for her lipo will find an affectionate protectress in her who will be able to appreciate his little recognized virtues are you satisfied now this speech really had splendid results all three were willing enough now to let the sick leonore have their mother and they were anxious besides to do everything in their power to make leonore's recovery speedy the uncle's description of the new playmate had wakened such a lively sympathy in them that they were ready to assist him in many ways and he was even obliged to cool their zeal as their guest was to remain such a short while uncle philip suggested a walk in order to show him the surroundings but when they looked around for salo they could not find either him or bruno they thought of the same thing uncle philip said it will be great fun to hunt for them so they started off uncle philip had guessed right bruno had found his new friend so much to his liking that he wanted to keep him entirely to himself while the uncle had talked with the younger children he had led salo out to take him on a stroll in the beautiful sunset salo was perfectly satisfied too as he felt himself likewise drawn towards bruno in the short time the two boys had grown as confiding as if they had known each other for years and they were just then wandering towards the castle hill absorbed in lively conversation can you guess why i am taking you up there bruno suddenly asked interrupting the talk because it is so lovely salo replied quickly he had stopped walking and was looking across the flowering meadows towards the castle over which rosy clouds were floating on the bright evening sky no not for that reason said bruno but because it belongs to an uncle of yours salo looked at him full of astonishment but bruno what an idea he called out laughing that would not be so bad but it can't be true we only have one uncle who has been living in spain for a number of years and who expects to stay there the castle belongs to just that uncle who lives in spain bruno asserted he reminded salo of the fact that their mothers had known each other while living in the castle and had grown to be such friends there salo admitted this but was firmly persuaded that the castle had long since been sold and that his uncle would never come back he had heard that from his great-aunt so bruno had to agree with him that the castle had probably been sold if the uncle did not think of returning do you know salo said bruno while they continued their walk i should love to do what your uncle did 
I want to go away from here and disappear for a long time. Then I would not be obliged to be fettered to those two horrid boys. I can't stand it, and you now know yourself what they are like. Bruno had described his two comrades to his new friend, their mean attitude and their frequent and contemptible tricks. Salo had repeatedly shown his feeling by sudden exclamations, and he said now, with comforting sympathy, I am sure it must make you feel like running away if you were obliged to spend all your days with two such boys. Don't listen to them, pay no attention to them, and let them do and say what they please. If they want to be mean, let them be, for they can't make you different. Oh, if you could be with me, that would be much easier, Bruno said. I should know then that you felt with me and shared my anger. When I am compelled to be alone with them and they do sneaky acts to people who can't defend themselves, I always get so mad that I have to beat them. That always brings nasty talk and makes my mother unhappy, and then I feel worse than ever. If only I could go far away and never have to meet them any more. If you had an idea what it is like not to have any home at all, you would not wish to leave yours without even knowing where to go, said Salo. You would not think that anything was too hard to bear if you could go home and tell your mother all about it. If you have that consolation, it should make you able to stand a lot of trouble. I shouldn't mind living with those two during school term if I could go to a place during the holidays that were a real home for me and Leonor. Every time I come to her she cries about having no home in the whole wide world. I try to think out something so that we won't have to wait so long before we can live together. But that is hard to carry out, for the gentleman in Holstein, who decides about our upbringing, wants me to study for many years. That will take much too long. Leonore might even die before that and I want to do it all for her. I am so glad now that Leonor has fallen ill, and has therefore come to you, he said with a brighter glance. I wish she would stay sick for a while. Of course, not awfully sick, he corrected himself rapidly. I mean, just sick enough so that your mother would not let her go. I know quite well how happy Leonor will be with her. She was so kind and friendly with us right away. Since our old aunt died, nobody has been so good and sweet with us as your mother, and that will do more good to Leonore than anything else on earth. Salo's words made a deep impression on Bruno. He had never before realized that everyone did not have a lovely home like his, and a mother besides who was always ready to greet him affectionately, who could be told everything, could help him bear everything, who shared all his experiences and had a sympathy like no one else. All this he had accepted as if it could not be otherwise. Now came the realization that things might be different. Poor Salo and his sister, for that instance, had to suffer bitterly from missing what he had always enjoyed to the full without thinking about it. He had seized with a sudden sympathy for his new friend, who looked so refined and charming, and who had already had to bear such sorrow for himself and his sister. Bruno now flung behind him all the thoughts and schemes he had had in connection with his coming fate, and all the fire of his nature he fastened on the thought of doing everything in his power to help Salo. He wanted to further his friend's plan to found a home for himself and his sister as soon as possible. That was something much more important than his disinclination to be with the Knippel boys. Now I shall not think about anything but what you can do to make your plan come true, he said at the conclusion of his meditation. If there are two of us who are so set on finding a way, we are sure to succeed somehow. It seems so wonderful to me, said Salo, quite overcome by Bruno's warm sympathy. I have various friends in boarding school, but there isn't one to whom I could have told what I am always thinking about, as I have told you. You are so different from them. 
Will you be my friend? Bruno firmly grasped Salo's proffered hand and cried out with beaming eyes, Yes, Salo, I will be your friend my whole life long. I wish I could do you a favor, too, as you have done me. But I have not done anything for you, Salo said with surprise. Oh, yes, you have. Now that I know I have a friend, I have lost my dread of living with the Knippel boys. I know that I can let them do as they please, for I'll know that I have a friend who thinks as I do and would have the same feeling about their actions. I'll be able to tell you everything, and you will tell me what you think. I can let them alone and think of you. Do you know, Bruno, the way I feel a real friendship ought to be, Sela said with glowing eyes, for this had made him happy too. I think it ought to be this way. If we have to hear of anything that is ugly, mean, or rough, we ought to think right away. I have a friend who would never do such a thing. If we hear of something, though, that pleases us, because it is fine, noble, and great, we should think again. My friend would do the same. Don't you agree with me? Bruno judged himself very severely, because his mother had held up his own faults to him, so that he knew them very well. He replied hesitatingly, I wish one could always be the way one wants to be. Would you give up trusting a friend right away if he did not act the way you expected him to? No, no, Salo said quickly. Such a friend could not trust me any more either. I mean it differently. The friend ought to hate to do wrong and ought to want to do right. He ought to be most sorry if he did not come up to the best. Bruno could now gladly and joyfully assent. Suddenly the two boys heard their names called out loudly. Turning round, they saw Kurt and Lippo hurrying towards them and the uncle following with Mia at a slower pace. Wait, wait! Kurt cried out so loudly that the echo sounded back again from the castle. Wait, wait! The two friends were doing just what had been asked of them, for they were sitting quietly on the turf. The brothers had now reached them, and Mia soon followed with the uncle, whose face showed signs of perturbation. I hope you have not run up to the castle with Salo, Bruno, he cried out with agitation. Oh, no, uncle, Bruno replied. We sat down here on the way up. I just wanted to show Salo the castle that belonged to his uncle, but he does not know anything about it. He thinks that it has been sold long ago because he never heard about it. Good, said Uncle Philip with satisfaction. Now let us quickly go home. It is not right to starve a guest on his first visit. He might never come again. Oh, I certainly shall, Mr. Here Salo hesitated. I do not remember the name, he added, quite concerned. My name here is Uncle Philip, the kind gentleman answered. Just Uncle Philip, nothing else. Am I allowed to call you Uncle, too? That makes me feel so much at home, Salo exclaimed, after nodding cordially. Well, Uncle Philip, I mean to come to you again with the keenest pleasure every time I am invited. I would even come with the greatest joy if you never gave me anything to eat. No, no, we don't have institutions for starving people, Uncle Philip replied. We are returning home now to a little feast I have told Kathy to get ready. It will consist mostly of country dishes. Our guest must know he has been received by friends. Oh, Uncle Philip, I felt that the first moment I met you, Salo exclaimed. The little group now strolled happily down the incline towards the house. Maisley was standing in the doorway with eyes as big as saucers. She had received the news from Kathy that they were to have omelette, apple souffle, ham pudding, sour milk, and sweet biscuits for supper in honor of a charming guest and Uncle Philip, who had come back. So Maisley looked out at them, and as soon as they were near enough, studied Salo very carefully. He must have pleased her, for she quickly ran towards him, and, reaching out her hand, said, "'Won't you stay with us for a while?' 
Salo laughed. Yes, I should love to. Taking him by the hand, Maisley led him into the house and to the room where the inviting table was already set. Kathy had been so many years in the house that she knew exactly how things ought to be. Everyone sat down now, and Uncle Philip was amusingly talking. Everything he had ordered for the meal tasted so delightfully that it seemed like a feast to them, and Salo said, I should never have been able to conceive such a wonderful end of my holidays if I had imagined the most marvelous thing in the world. If Salo could only stay here a few days, if only one day more, Bruno urged. All the rest were of the same opinion, and they loudly begged Uncle Philip to persuade him to spend the next day with them. They thought that even one day together would be perfect for everyone. Yes, and for me most of all, said Salo, but I cannot. My teacher and comrades are coming to fetch me at Sills tomorrow at ten o'clock. This is absolutely settled, and there is not the slightest chance for my staying here, even if I wished it more than anything in the world. That is right, Salo. That is the way to talk, Uncle Philip said. What has to be has to be, even if we don't like it. Please do not beg him any more to stay. Let us play a nice game now, and let us enjoy ourselves while he is with us. Uncle Philip soon started the game, and their merry mood returned with the fun. At the exact time when their mother always called the little ones for bed, Lippo cried, Uncle Philip, we must sing the evening song now, and after that Maisley and I must go to bed. This did not suit Maisley at all, however, for she was full of the game just then. Salo, who was sitting beside her, had been so funny that it suited her better to stay here than to go to bed. Quickly climbing up the uncle's chair from behind, she put both round arms caressingly about his neck and whispered in his ear, "'Oh, darling Uncle Philip, today is a feast day, isn't it? Can't we stay up a little longer? The game is such fun, and it's so tiresome to go to bed.' "'Yes, yes, it is a feast day,' the uncle assented. "'The little ones can stay up a little longer. Let us all keep on playing.' Maisley joyfully skipped back to her place, and the merriment was resumed. The game, which was very amusing, was made more so by Uncle Philip's funny remarks. Nobody had noticed, therefore, how quiet Maisley had grown. Salo suddenly remarked, "'Oh, look! Maisley is sound asleep. She is nearly tumbling from her chair.' And the little girl would have dropped had not Salo held her by quickly putting his arm about her. Uncle Philip went to her. "'Come, Maisley, come,' he said encouragingly. "'Open your eyes quickly, and Mia will take you to bed.' "'No, no,' Maisley lamented and would not move. "'But you must. Just look, we are all going,' the uncle said vigorously. "'Do you want to stay behind?' "'No, no, no,' Maisley moaned, full of misery. "'Mia, give her some cake,' the uncle ordered. "'Then she'll wake up.' "'We have no cake, uncle,' Mia replied. "'What, you don't have a thing so necessary as that in a house full of children?' "'Well, I shall get some tomorrow,' he said, quite agitated. "'Do you want a candy, Maisley?' Come, just taste how sweet it is. No, 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 Maisley moaned again in such sorrowful tones as no one had ever heard from the energetic little child. Suddenly a most disturbing thought shot through the uncle's brain. Suppose the child has already caught the fever. What should I do? What ought one to do? He cried out with growing anxiety. Kathy had entered the room in the meantime to see if anything more was needed. "'That is the way, Mr. Falcon,' she said, going up to Maisley, and quickly lifting her in her strong arms, she carried her upstairs. Despite all her lamenting, the child was then undressed and put to bed. In the shortest time she was sound asleep, again, without a trace of fever. "'Well, that's over now,' Uncle Philip said, quite relieved when Kathy came back with the news. "'I really think that the time has come for us all to seek our beds.' 
Lippo actually looks as if he could not stand on his little legs. The boy was as white as chalk from staying up so late. From time to time he tried to open his eyes, but they always fell shut again. The uncle, taking his hand, wanted to lead him away, but he fought against it. "'Uncle Philip, we have not sung the evening song yet,' he said, clutching the piano. "'Mercy!' the uncle cried out, disturbed. "'Is this going to start now?' "'No, no, Lippo, it is much too late tonight. "'You can sing two songs tomorrow, then everything will be straightened out.' "'Then we shall have sung two songs tomorrow, but none today,' Lippo began in a complaining voice, holding on to the piano and pulling his uncle towards him. "'Nothing can be done. We have to do it,' Uncle Philip said with resignation, for he knew the obstinacy of his godson in regard to all customs. "'Kurt, you can tell me about the songs.' Please find the shortest in the song-book, or we shall have to sing till tomorrow morning. Please spare us such a miserable scene. But wait, Kurt. The song must have a tune I can sing, for as nobody plays the piano, I have to set the tune. Do you want to sing with us too, Salo? Or is it too late for you? You can retire if you prefer. You go upstairs to the room at the right corner. Oh, no, I want to stay as long as anybody is left, Salo replied. I shall enjoy singing and doing everything with you. It is all so funny and strange. Kurt had chosen a suitable song, and Uncle Philip began it so vigorously that everybody could join and a full-voiced chorus was formed. Lippo's voice sounded dreadfully weak, but he sang every note to the last word, fighting mightily against his growing sleepiness. Now the little company could wander upstairs to their receptive rooms without further obstacle. Oh, Uncle Philip breathed relieved when they had reached the top. At least we are as far as this. It really is an undertaking to keep in order a handful of children, where one always differs from the last. Now I have luckily gotten through for today. What? Not yet. What is the matter, Bruno? The latter, approaching his uncle with clear signs that he wanted him for something, had pulled him aside. I want to ask you for something, said Bruno. I wonder if you will do me a great favor, Uncle Philip. Salo and I have so much to talk about still, and he must leave tomorrow. I wanted to ask you if Kurt can sleep beside you in the guest room, and Salo could sleep in Kurt's bed in my room. What are you thinking of? the uncle said irritably. You should hear what your mother would say to that. The idea of having a Waller Staten for a guest and offering him a bed which has been used already, that would seem a real crime in her eyes. That can't be. No, it mustn't. I hope you can see it, too, don't you? Yes, Bruno said, much depressed, for he had to agree. But Uncle could not stand such downcast spirits. Listen, Bruno, he said, you realize that we can't do it that way. But an uncle knows how to arrange things, and that is why he is here. This is the way we'll do. I'll sleep in your bed, and Salo and you can sleep in the guest room. Will that suit? Oh, thank you, Uncle Philip. There is no other uncle like you, Bruno cried out in his enthusiasm. So Uncle Philip's last difficulty was solved for today, and everybody was willing to go to bed. Soon the house lay in deep quiet. Even the sick child in the highest story lay calmly sleeping on her cool pillows. She did not even notice when Mrs. Maxa stepped up once more to her bedside with a little lamp. Before herself retiring, she wanted to listen once more to the child's breathing. Only the two new friends were still talking long after midnight. They understood each other so thoroughly, and upon all points that Bruno had proposed in his enthusiasm that they would not waste one minute of the night in sleep. Salo expressed his wish over and over again, 
that Bruno might become his comrade in the boarding school. But finally, victorious sleep stole unperceived over the two lads and quietly closed their eyes. End of chapter 6「What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy and delicious breads, buns and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. » Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.